I kind of do. Uh, th thank you, Mandy, and welcome everybody to this um, very important debate. Um, the world economy um, has become more integrated since the Second World War. Trade barriers were coming down. They haven't gone away. But we may be in a time where globalization and trade barriers is going into reverse. We've seen the rise of trade disputes. Um, we've seen Brexit, which may or may not have an impact uh, on both European integration and global integration. So, and we've also had the rise of nationalism, uh, particularly in Europe. So we're seeing many important trends that may suggest that the global trends that we've seen since the Second World War may be going into reverse. We haven't seen this level of trade disputes since the 1930s. Again, another period which led to the deglobalization of the world economy. So to discuss this important topic, we have four speakers. We have, um, first of all, Mark William Palin, who's Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Exeter. Uh, secondly, we have Dr. Monaco Moriata Jaeger, a Trade Policy Consultant and Associate Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory of the University of Sussex. And then we have Dr. Meredith Crowley, who's a reader in international economics here at the Economics Faculty in the University of Cambridge. And particularly from the home team, we have, fourthly, we have Dr. Lauren Bartels, a reader in international law here at this law faculty. So we have four distinguished speakers who are raising various aspects of this topic about trade wars. Just to let you know the format, each speaker will be speaking between eight and ten minutes. And that will then leave plenty of time for you to answer questions, ask questions of the panel. So we're going to have four presentations of eight to ten minutes each and, and then open up for, for questions and answers. So to kick off, um, we're going to have um, Mark William Palin, who's, as I said, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Exeter. And Mark is the author of an important book, The Conspiracy of Free Trade, The Anglo-American Struggle Over Empire and Economic Globalization. 1846 to 1896, published here by CUP. So, uh, Mark, uh, the floor is yours. As the title of the book might suggest, I'm going to be pushing us even earlier than the 1930s for some historical uh, lessons here, parallels, uh, truths perhaps. And one of the biggest myths that I continue to find myself confronting uh, based on the research that I'm doing um, and what I keep coming across in the media is that uh, the Republican Party is historically the party of free trade. And thus, Trump's protectionism is some anomaly. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Looking at the long history of the Republican Party, Trump's protectionism and his views on trade are actually a return to the Republican status quo a return to late 19th and early 20th century imperial protectionist politics. And I want to, because I only have eight to ten minutes here, uh, uh, demonstrate this just through looking at one word that he uses. I could do it with fair trade, but I'm going to do it with his favorite word, which is reciprocity. Reciprocity is my favorite word, Trump has stated time and again since becoming president. I love the word reciprocal. But to understand what Trump means by reciprocity, we need to take a hard look at the Republican Party's protectionist past because his views on reciprocity are actually a throwback to this late 19th century age of Republican protectionism. Far from being the party of free trade and free markets, the, the party it was a, a protectionist party from its founding. This is something that Trump himself has pointed out. He always 
you know, harkens back to the protectionism of Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge. And so it's through this long lens of GOP trade history that the party of Reagan's quasi-mythical 1980s love affair with laissez-faire and Atlas Shrugged, this is what becomes the anomaly in Republican history. From its founding in the 1850s to the mid-20th century, the Republican Party was the party of protectionism, the American system. It was the party of big business, uh, the steel trust, uh, the sugar trust. And Trump's favorite word, reciprocity, actually is a rather apt illustration of his desire to turn back the clock on U.S. and perhaps even world trade and to return the GOP to its protectionist roots. And I think adding to this confusion, though, around his favorite word, nowadays reciprocity is more commonly associated with fostering trade liberalization, and it's associated with multilateralism. And this liberal version of reciprocity was actually enshrined under democratic auspices in the late 1940s. This is with the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which became the WTO in the 1990s. But this is not what Trump means by reciprocity. His disdain for this multilateral free trade version of reciprocity is quite clear. He's threatened to withdraw the United States from the WTO, something that's still a possibility. Um, he very nearly nixed the North American Free Trade Agreement. And of course, the first thing he practically, as soon as he got into the White House, was he pulled the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this massive uh, dozen-nation uh, multilateral trade initiative. Trump's brand of reciprocity instead is representative of what the GOP meant by reciprocity way back in the late 19th century. And back then, what Trump now calls America first was known as the American system, but has a lot of the same elements. Uh, prohibitive immigration restrictions were then combined with the American system's uh, economic nationalist program of high protective tariffs alongside subsidies for U.S. farmers, this might sound familiar, to shelter America's less developed country from that of the more industrially advanced British. The British in the late 19th century were the industrial powerhouse. They were also the, the, the country of free trade in contrast to the Republican system of protectionism, the American system. And so fearing this competition with these cheaper imports of the more industrially advanced free trade England, John Bull, the character of, of Britain, became the bogeyman of late 19th century Republican protectionists in a very similar manner in which Trump now cracks conspiratorial about China today. And we have Republican leaders like William McKinley of Ohio, who frequently asserted that it was, quote, beyond dispute that American free traders were in league with the statesmen and ruling classes of Great Britain and working to undermine America's high tariff walls. Quote, a joint warfare against American labor and American wages, a plot against the industrial life of the nation. This is a very common sort of rhetoric of the GOP in the late 19th century. So this paranoid, uh, this fear of the British, uh, this fear of multilateralism uh, leads the GOP to introduce its alternate version of reciprocity. And this happens in a very big way in 1890 when the Republican-controlled Congress passed what was then a very highly controversial tariff bill called the McKinley Tariff, named after its principal author, William McKinley who was endearingly nicknamed the Napoleon of Protection by his friends. Presumably he was rather short. Um, in contrast to the multilateralism associated with reciprocity nowadays, the GOP's version of reciprocity was bilateral, conditional, 
that constrained trade liberalization. And hanging over Republican reciprocity, then as now, was the threat of punitive tariff retaliation. As Trump describes it, what I want to do is reciprocal. See, I think the concept of reciprocal is a very nice concept. If somebody is charging us 50%, we should charge them 50%. For Trump, reciprocity is a weapon of retaliation to be used against, quote, so-called allies, as he put it. And this is much as it was like in the late 19th century. William Lloyd Garrison II, the son of the very famous abolitionist firebrand William Lloyd Garrison, um, was the leader of the late 19th century American free trade movement. And he observed as much in the early 1890s after the McKinley Tariff was passed. Republican reciprocity's, quote, true name is retaliation. Republican reciprocity is a club. It threatens. Trump, who thinks, quote, trade wars are good, similarly sees the reciprocal threat of tariff retaliation as this stick to threaten American allies and trading partners. And protectionism and reciprocity, then, are two sides of the same coin for Trump, as it once was for the ghost of the GOP past. In fact, in 1892, Benjamin Harrison, a now forgotten figure, uh, the, the president who was the incumbent in 1892, seeking re-election, his slogan that he ran on was protection and reciprocity. I've even recently discovered that he named his two pet opossums, Mr. Reciprocity and Mr. Protection. And I don't know what's weirder about that. I don't know exactly what it's like having opossums as pets, but I can imagine him coming home and saying, come here, Mr. Protection, come here, Mr. Reciprocity. I don't know exactly what this, this sort of looked like. But um, protection and reciprocity would remain the GOP's mantra for years to come. The 1896 Republican platform once again stated that this was its, uh, a part of its uh, platform here. Protection and reciprocity are twin measures of Republican policy and go hand in hand. The coercive connotations of this Republican-style reciprocity took on ever more imperial dimensions by the turn of the century. And I think this is another interesting element to think about when we think what might happen under this Trump version of reciprocity when it comes to foreign policy and his American First program, protectionism. So in a speech given in, in July of 2017, uh, 2017 to inaugurate Made in America Week, Trump explicitly tied his idea of reciprocity to that of the Republican Party's imperial past when he declared that, quote, reciprocity is the handmaiden of protection. And I felt like I was the only one in the world at that point that kind of just my ears perked up because I said, wait a minute, I know what he's quoting there. He's quoting Teddy Roosevelt's uh, uh, first message to Congress in 1901. But the context in which that line was taken from is really important to understand perhaps what reciprocity uh, could mean for the Trump administration. At that time, protectionist reciprocity was taking on an expanded role within the Republican Party's imperial playbook. And this is because the GOP was in the midst of overseeing how to deal with its newly acquired colonies after the Spanish-American War in 1898. It had acquired numerous colonies in the Caribbean, the Pacific, uh, from the Spanish Empire, including Cuba, which was ostensibly independent after the Spanish-American War, but uh, in reality, it was an American informal colony. And this is because of reciprocity. Teddy Roosevelt worked to make a US colony out of Cuba in practice. And he recognized that reciprocity would give the USA informal control of, quote, the Cuban market and by every means to foster our supremacy in the tropical lands and waters south of us. 
So that was Teddy Roosevelt's version of reciprocity, tied to imperial expansion, tied to coercion, the threats of tariff retaliation. And that's Trump's version of reciprocity. Uh, in other words, by historicizing Trump's favorite word, we can see that his version of reciprocity, this, this version that he's peddling, arose amid a bygone era of protectionist fears of globalism, a bygone age of incessant tariff wars, geopolitical conflict, and U.S. imperial expansion. Buyer beware. Thank you. Thank you very much to Mark and for his uh, excellent speech and for his very, very good timing as well. Um, our second presenter is Dr. Monaco Mariata Jaeger, who's a trade policy consultant and associate fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. And she has over 20 years experience in trade policy. Um, and she is currently uh, delivering trade policy research for a number of governments and organizations around the world. And we will just have a PowerPoint pause and that one, I've got the advantage that I come from a business school, so everything is done by PowerPoint, so, um, okay. Sorry, I'm not like Japanese, but I'm Japanese. And um, so I'm talking about the trading wars from the East Asian perspective today. Um, history of trade and development in East Asia after the Second World War II and the Second World War cannot be told without trade friction with the U.S. The trade friction between, that is, the trade friction between the super world superpower and then catching up countries. Among the East Asian countries, I'd like to draw attention to Japan's experience. How U.S. trade, trade friction shaped Japan's trade policy after the Second World War, and then I'd like to compare it with the ongoing U.S. trade war. And then I would like to explain impact of U.S. trade war on trade policy in East Asia at bilateral, plurilateral, and multilateral level, and what will be beyond. So trade friction with the U.S. already started from the um, textile in 1950s. So as you can see, that it started from textile in 1950 and moving to steels 1960 to 1970s and the color TVs and then also the 1960s, 1970s and moved to more technology intensive sectors such as automobiles and conductors and consumer electric products in 1980s. Now how Japan respond to the US unilateral threat? Um, the Japan's case they first voluntarily they introduced the world voluntary export controls, and then after that, ad hoc basis, accepted the world sectoral negotiations, and it always ended up with the voluntary export controls arrangement. So this continues to the late 1980s. So the US bashing reached a peak between 1970s and 1980s. <laughs> According to Professor Bhagwati, the U.S. trade policy during the period is, is aggressive unilateralism. In 1988, the GATT dispute settlement judged 
that voluntary restraint arrangement under the US-Japan Semiconduct Agreement was illegal. So this became a turning point of Japan's trade policy. Since then, Japan turned to aggressive legalism, using the gut to legally fight against US bilateral threat. So very interesting thing here is what we can learn from here is supremacy of multilateral trading systems embedded at the heart of the Japanese trade policy as a consequences of US unilateral threat. So let's compare the, the US-Japan trade war and the US-China trade war. We can see a similarity that US fundamental concern is emerging economic power which threat its global position. However, there are two significant differences. First, China's reaction to US threat is very different from Japan's. Now that China is retaliating the US by introducing high tariffs, which is something Japan could not do because they have um, very limited relative power against the US. For Japan, the US is politically, economically, both the most important alliance at the international stage. So they cannot do that kind of retaliation. And the second point, the second difference is economic models. The bottom line of the US claim is China's state capitalism. When Japan experienced economic growth in the 20th century, Japanese government played a very important role in industrial policy. But Japanese economy was based on market economy. China's growth model based on state capitalism is causing conflict with neoliberalism. That is a great um, big difference we have to see. So, um, what is the impact of ongoing U.S.-China trade war on East Asian trade policy making, and what will be beyond? We are now facing two fundamental problems of the U.S.-China trade war. One, the U.S. economic nationalism. Second, China state capitalism. To solve the solution, there are basically two methods in theory. One is international action without international institutions. Second is international action through international institutions. And the international action without international institution is either bilateral way or plurilateral way. How the East Asian is responding? So let's see. As for the bilateral solutions, Korea widely responded to the U.S. request of renegotiating the U.S.-Korea FTA and then Korea successfully concluded and revised the FTA in a way it does not harm to its own economy. And then Japan's case is a little bit different. Japan hesitated to start bilateral talks and in the end, recently, um, agreed to start trade agreement and goods negotiation with the US. But the court tried to navigate, um, maneuver to start bilateral FTA negotiation with the US based on threat. But uh, this is very risky choice and uh, we will see how it will happen, what would happen. And um, so next is a plurilateral level. Interesting thing is CPTPP. 
China is emerging economic power based on the state capitalism as well as its expansionism were threatening neighboring countries in East Asia. So the political motive of original TPP initiated by the um, US and Japan, that is the Obama administration uh, period, was to surround China by promoting high level trade rules and the balance, balancing regional hegemony in Asia Pacific. Because President Trump withdrew from the TPP, the strategic feature of the TPP has completely changed. The TPP was renamed as TPP minus um, one, was renamed as CPTPP, and it was now the meant to surround the US economic nationalism by promoting rules-based trading system. So the members try to make the club after promoting the rules-based trading system. But this plurilateral solution also does not become direct solution, but because of the important player of the US and China is outside. So what will be the multilateral solution? From the 2000, just right after Seattle, the WTO Seattle conference um, in 1999, the East Asian countries went through the period of competitive regionalism. They started to make bilateral FTAs within Asia, in parallel with making cross-regional bilateral FTAs, and now moving to more uh, mega FTAs. Over the last two decades, Asian countries were too busy with making FTAs and the WTO was forgotten or left over. But now, because of the Chinese trade war, they realize the importance of WTO. And um, in terms of the US economic nationalism, the WTO played a crucial role for the East Asian countries. The WTO provides a place to negotiate with a superpower in the level playing field. The WTO dispute settlement mechanisms provide non-political rules-based solution for trade dispute. In terms of China's state capitalism, um, Japan, because this is a highly industrialized country, shared the sensitivity of the, um, China's free riding issues. But the way to solve the issue, the position is quite different and more likely than sharing the position of the EU that is the reform in the WTO in the three pillar, on the base of three pillar. One is strengthening the dispute settlement mechanism. Second is strengthening the rules in the area of the market distorting subsidies, competition policy, and um, infringement of intellectual property rights. And then third is reforming WTO decision making mechanism and the negotiating process of the mechanism. This position is, however, not shared with developing countries in East Asia. Why? Because they don't like the international organization, WTO, to limit their policy space. The policy space means their flexibility, the capacity of deciding its own industrial policy. So it is clear that Chinese, US-China trade war is forming impetus toward multilateralism but how to function global trade governance and how can the WTO be the institution told the issue and is WTO re reform really necessary? If so, what levels of reform is needed? This is, these, kind of, uh, this, these are the issues we have to think about and they cooperate together. 
Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that talk from Monaco. Our, our third um, presentation today is from Dr. Meredith Crowley, who is a reader in international economics at the economics faculty in the University of Cambridge. She's also a research fellow at the Centre for Economic uh, Policy Research and is a research leader for the UK in Changing Europe think tank. Uh, her research is in international trade, multinational trade and trade policy. So definitely um, on message for this topic. Hopefully. Um, so let's see. Okay, so uh, thanks to everyone for coming out. Hopefully we can, in seven minutes, I can tell you a little bit about what I think are some of the origins of the US-China trade war and what might happen from where we are right now. So global trade, so trade basically between any country in the world take, takes place under what we often refer to as the world trading system. So, so what is this? It's a huge overlapping network of different types of international agreements or treaties um, that establish rules for trade in goods. To some extent, there's some rules for trade in services. And all of this takes place under the giant umbrella of the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization is in itself a multilateral trade agreement. So a treaty among 164 countries. It defines for every country that participates in it what the tariffs are, the taxes on things that are going to come in as imports. And it sets some other rules over like how you can use subsidies or more specifically if a government wants to subsidize its domestic industry and another country feels like, oh, I don't like your policy, what can that other country do about it? Now alongside this WTO agreement, we also have what are called plurilateral agreements. So for example, production of civil aircraft, Boeing, Airbus, that takes place under another trade agreement that limits the use of subsidies. Then we have what we call large multilateral agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement or the European Union. These take place under the WTO and it's basically an agreement among that set of countries to further liberalize trade. So you know, famously the European Union has no internal tariffs. So if you sell something from Germany into Poland, there's no taxes at the border. The only tax would be the normal VAT tax. We also have further trade agreements. So for example, the United States has a bilateral trade agreement with South Korea. Okay, This also is basically under the WTO. And then we have some other agreements that are part of the WTO. For, for example, trade-related investment measures. So basically, if I'm a company in the United States, I want to invest in Canada, can the Canadian government establish rules that say, oh, well, if you want to have your foreign direct investment here, you have to buy local products? No, the Canadians can't do that. So within this system, what's been going on? So first of all, this is just a map of the world. And the color, it's color-coded to show you how high is the average tariff for the country you see. So the very pale pink, that's the United States, that is a tariff on average of between 0 and 5%. You see China has a tariff right around 10% ad valorem. It's darker red. Do you get to the very darkest red countries in sub-Saharan Africa and a few Latin American countries where the average tariff that these countries can charge under the rules of the WTO is more than 35% ad valorem. Why are tariffs in Africa so high? 
it's really hard to collect taxes if you're a very poor country. And so one of the things for these countries is almost a necessity. They set high taxes at the border because it's an easy administrative way to collect taxes. Um, but so you can see that there's some differences across the world, okay? And so most notably, I'll show you, this is the same information on that map, but here I'm presenting it in a table. And so I'll just highlight for you, I've got a couple countries highlighted. So the United States is in yellow, and the first column tells you the average tariff applied at the border on things entering the United States is about 3.5%, okay? So if you then look at, say, for example, China, a country with a much lower per capita income, its average tariff it charges at the border is just about 10%. Okay, and one of the interesting things here, you know, the United States and the European Union have very similar trade policies, similar degrees of openness to other countries in the world. But if you look at a country like China, you see actually its tariffs as a middle-income country are actually much lower than many of the other middle-income countries trading in the world. But still, for someone like President Trump, he looks at this 10% import tariff on China and he doesn't say, oh, China's a you know, middle-income, sort of just recently developing country. He says, as Mark was pointing out, that's not reciprocal, and therefore they're bad guys. Um, but the, the basic point that I want you to take away from this slide, high-income Western countries, Japan, have extremely open liberal trading systems. How are they able to maintain this in the face of potentially domestic political pressure coming from various manufacturing interests within their economies that feel the need to have some shelter against the competition that comes from middle-income countries that export to them. So we have, as part of our set of rules in the WTO, rules called special import protection. So what is special import protection? There's a bunch of different provisions, but basically these different provisions say if an economy is importing a lot from another country. And they can show through some various, you know, administrative process, you know, in the United States it's actually like a court procedure. If they can provide documented evidence that the domestic firms that compete against imports are suffering injury, they're reducing employment, they have excess capacity utilization, so that, or capacity underutilization, so essentially the plants are idle. They've started to lose profit. So if they can show some change where a particular industry is in distress, they have the right under the rules of the WTO to temporarily impose tariffs. So what this, these series of figures show you here, the y-axis in each of these figures is the fraction of roughly 5,000 products that a country could import that are under a special tariff order. So the scales of these y-axis are different, but so what you can see for the United States is on average that top black line is sort of bobbing along at around 6%. So about 5 or 6% of goods that the U.S. is importing over this long time period from roughly 1995 to you know, today, about 5% of products would be under a special tariff order. So in a sense, one of the ways that the world trading system works for the United States is it generally has an extremely open and liberal economy. But for some sort of carved out sectors, it's very protectionist. Europe has a sort of similar system, but they don't have quite as many products under protection. In contrast, China has higher tariffs 
And only about 1% of goods going into China are under special tariff orders. India, on the other hand, is a combination of it has both high tariffs on average and it uses a lot of special protection. But so what happened over the last 15 years is the U.S. had this relatively high, about 6% of its goods under these special tariff orders, is its trading partners went to the WTO and said, actually, the way in which the U.S. is using the law to put on these tariffs isn't fair, and we don't think it's what they agreed to when they joined the WTO in 1995. So what we have is a long series of cases since 1995 in which the U.S. trading partners, you know, originally it was largely the European Union, but over time, it, you know, as we put more, as the United States put more and more tariffs on China, there were also cases involving China. Essentially, the trading partners of the U.S. went to the WTO and said, they're not interpreting the law correctly, and we want you to tell them that. And that's what the WTO dispute resolution system did. They sent, went to the U.S. and said, you're not doing this properly. You can't do it in this way anymore. You have to stop using so many tariffs. Now, if you look at the picture, you don't see real change, no real decline in the number of products under U.S. anti-dumping orders. But gradually, the U.S. has come under more and more constraints into how they could use these things. So we run to where we are today. A protectionist president is elected to office. His U.S. trade representative, the man forming his trade policy, is the guy who is losing many of these cases at the WTO. And this, you know, wing of the Republican Party very much feels a strong need to protect narrow sectors of the U.S. economy, and they saw their rights to use the various tools they were using under the WTO eroded away. So what do they do? Totally out of left field, they decide to say, you know what, the WTO, you really can't challenge in international economic law. You can't challenge a national security trump card. If we as the United States go in and say, actually, we need tariffs, and it's for our national defense, other countries don't really want to get into that fight because that's really invasive to tell another country where their national security interests lie, even if what the basis for the position is inherently flawed. So, you know, as an American, I think this arguing that this is in the U.S. national security interest is ridiculous. But the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military has said that this is essential. So where are we now? So what we have is the U.S. has used this crazy trump card and this sort of exceptional provision in the WTO that has virtually never been used, said that it needs to put on tariffs in its national defense, thinking that our allies around the world won't really feel comfortable challenging this at the WTO. So where are we today? Last week, the European Union, Russia, China, I think Canada, all together challenged the use of this U.S. new form of special tariff protection at the WTO. So where does this leave us? Who knows? Um, Minako mentioned that, you know, is there a need for WTO reform? Absolutely. One of the problems we have is that over the last 20 years, the U.S. has basically kind of said, well, we can have this very open liberal economy to the world if we have some ability to use a bit of protection to protect some sectors. This is something we feel strongly we need. The WTO dispute settlement has kind of taken that away. The U.S. is unhappy that they don't have as much access to other countries' markets. And what we would normally have in international economic law is all of these countries should have come together 10 years ago they should have come together 10 years ago to renegotiate the terms. So as the U.S. started to lose these cases, the sensible thing would have been to sit down with the Europeans, the Japanese, some of the major players, 
bring in China and say, how should we reform these rules? Because as the United States, we want the discretion and authority to put on random tariffs on particular sectors just because we like them. That's how we want to manage our policy. And that would have been a sensible thing. At the same time that the US has been extremely frustrated over its loss of discretion over these anti-dumping duties, we have a similar problem happening where, or an, a, a, a different problem, a lot of middle-income and developing countries have started to go down a route where they very much feel that the path of development is heavy industrial policy, subsidization of advanced technologies, subsidization of manufacturing. And the tools in the WT, so when you do this, if you subsidize an industry, the problem from the perspective of, say, the European Union is when the Chinese subsidize the development of solar panels, it pushes down the price of solar panels. That's good if you're a consumer in Europe, but if you're a German firm that invested a lot of money developing advanced technology, this undercuts your position competitively to the point where you could shut down. And so we're left with a problem that for, say, the European Union faced with intensive competition from solar panel producers in China that benefited from subsidization at the hand of the Chinese state. They're kind of in a tough position. There's no real tool in the WTO for the European Union to respond to that subsidization in China. Or more precisely, there are some rules, but they're kind of weak and not very effective. So what we need going forward, and maybe this is the direction which we'll go, is we need some reform to rules of the WTO. We need to think seriously about competition policy, countries' freedom to impose these temporary tariffs, subsidization policy. And on a positive note, the European Union has already put forward a WTO reform proposal. The Canadians have put forward a draft WTO reform proposal. And maybe the good thing that will come out of Trump, President Trump is that for 20 years, or at least the last 10, we've known that WTO reform and some changes and updating of rules was sort of needed. Now we might finally have the catalyst that's going to push everybody to the negotiating table to get a better system. That's the hope. <laughs> so leaving it all on a good note, well, I'll stop there. Um, used up my time and happy to take questions. Thank you very much to Meredith. Our final speaker is Dr. Lauren Bartels, who is a reader in international law uh, at the Faculty of Law here and is a fellow of Trinity Hall. He teaches uh, international law, WTO law and EU law, and he's been a specialist advisor to the UK House of Commons Select Committee on International Trade. So, Lauren, the, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks a lot, and um, thanks everybody for uh, being here. Uh, I was in two minds about what to speak about because I spend most of my time talking about Brexit, but then I thought, just for a change, I should speak to the topic at hand. Um, and so what I'm going to do in uh, the uh, short time that I've got is give you a legal perspective on some of what you've been hearing about. Um, there'll be a little bit of overlap, particularly with what Meredith has been talking about. I should say we do this double act fairly regularly, um, but hopefully not too much. So let me tell you a bit about the WTO. Meredith already uh, gave you uh, an introduction to that, but I'll just want to break down for you what the rules actually say, because 
one of the interesting things about this area, international economics, is that there's a bit of a, say, culture clash. You've got the economists and they say, well, this is what it should all be about. And then, as in lots of fields in life, the lawyers get their grimy hands on it and convert it into legal language, which nobody else can really understand. But those who've got an interest in it will say, well, you've mangled this, and this isn't really what this was supposed to be about. So let me tell you how the WTO mangles the purity of international economics. It's actually not too bad. Um, the basic principle of the WTO, which dates from 1995 and builds on um, the, an agreement called GATT, which is a bit more primitive but is still there from 1947, is that uh, you're not supposed to, as a country, protect domestic industry. That's basically um, the idea. In fact, you can boil down all of this, a big thick book of rules, um, but you can boil it down into one very simple principle, which is don't protect domestic industry, I'm talking about making things, like goods, in any way except customs duties. That's essentially it. You can't subsidise in a discriminatory way, you can't have discriminatory regulations, taxation, uh, quotas, any of that. It's all banned except for customs duties. Having said that, you are allowed to regulate for good reasons, you know, public policy reasons, health, safety, the environment, uh, public morals, national security. I'll tell you a bit about in a moment. So that's basically it. Now, when it comes with, to services, which is activities, um, you know, someone does something for you, a company does something for you, and there's a foreign element, the company is foreign, or the service comes from somewhere else, like over the internet or whatever, the rules are a little bit more primitive. You need to actually talk in the WTO about which services you want to be non-protectionist in. The default position is still protectionism. So that's one of the basic points of the WTO. The other one, um, and, and countries will uh, negotiate down customs duties, I should say, and on services, in accordance with the principle of reciprocity, or else um, they did, uh, they don't anymore in the WTO uh, because of the principle of reciprocity, which has uh, jammed up the gears. Um, and that's because you need to understand the WTO also in accordance with another principle, the second big principle, which is the most favoured nation obligation. And that says that whatever treatment you give to one country in the club, the WTO club, and 164 members, so just about all countries, you've got to give the same treatment immediately to the others. This is one of the reasons Trump says, no, we don't like the WTO, because that destroys reciprocity. Because you, you can, you know, this is the guy who negotiated with someone to write a book called The Art of the Deal. I mean, he likes deals. Um, and the problem with the most favoured nation obligation is it gets rid of deals. You know, you know you can negotiate with someone else, but what if it turns out that you, by accident, are also negotiating with 163 other entities at the same time? And that's what Trump really hates about the WTO, in addition to the sanctions dimension of reciprocity. So it's just, MFN destroys negotiation because you can't control them anymore. So imagine if I was trying to sell you know, something and it turned out it was selling whatever to everybody without any say-so. That's the MFN principle. And over the years, it's, it's clogged up the system. And that's why we have free trade agreements because that um, is bilateral or regional and you can have reciprocity. So Trump likes FTAs on the one hand. He doesn't like them on the other hand because it involves free trade. Uh, and uh, that's also not good. So that's basically the WTO. Now, none of this would mean anything, really, if you couldn't enforce these rules. And since 1995, there's compulsory enforcement of these rules, and if you break them, you get slapped with trade sanctions. And compliance is very high, uh, something like 
of all cases. Now, everything is in trouble at the moment, and this is the trade war. So let me quickly run you through a few points of trouble, and the US is at the base of a lot of this trouble, but not only. So, US has been unhappy for a long time about the way that these rules have been interpreted by the court system in the WTO. Um, it's two levels. They're not, it's not called a court because that wouldn't have got past Congress. Um, so they gave it this Politburo-type language name, which is uh, appellate body, which, you know, Congress didn't really know what that was, and so they signed off on it. <laughs> um, but it's basically a Supreme Court of International Trade. Um, anyway, they were a bit unhappy when they realised what that meant because it interpreted these rules. And one of the rules that the US is particularly keen on is what Meredith was talking about, which is these additional duties that you're allowed to impose on products that come in when you say they're too cheap, you know, when there's something unfair about them. Uh, Anti-dumping duties is an example. Another one is duties on subsidised products. There's another one called safeguard measures when it's a big flood that you weren't expecting and all of this has to harm domestic industry. Anyway, the US has a very liberal approach to this that basically says, yeah, we think whatever, slap duties on. You know? And they've been doing this for years. And since 95, they've lost a whole series of cases, as Meredith said, because the rules were interpreted in a way that didn't suit the US. And then the US has said, well, we, that's not what we meant when we signed up to the appellate body. And it turned out, well, bad luck. I mean, you know, read the small print. So they said we wrote the small print, but it turns out there was even more small print. I mean, they've got sort of a point. Uh, but not really that much of a point. So what this has been upsetting the US for years, since 95, and what Trump has done is basically killed off the dispute settlement mechanism, or he's about to, by refusing to allow the judges to be reappointed. They, the terms expire after four years, and we are now down to three at the top level, and there's a minimum of three. So, you know, on a bad day, you don't have enough judges to run. There should be seven. Uh, and it will die in a year's time unless something is fixed, and that's kind of the end of that bit of the system. But with no enforcement, you know, why abide by the rules? Because there's no sanction. Right? The second problem is not really just an American problem, but for whatever reason, also to do with the US dollar, I mean, the reserve currency, particularly in the open um, for the Americans, and that is uh, Chinese state capitalism. Again, uh, what you've heard about twice now. Um, the problem there is that the rules on subsidies in the WTO don't deal with this very well. As Meredith mentioned, essentially what it is is subsidies rules stop you. I mean, you know, Labor doesn't like this very much or won't like it much when it realises that what it complains about at the EU level is exactly the same at the WTO level. They stop you from dumping money on companies. Right? You just can't give money to companies or give them tax breaks or whatever. Right? You just can't do that if it is discriminatory, and it usually is, or you wouldn't do it. Right? That's kind of the point. The problem with state capitalism is that the companies that make the products in China and other countries with state capitalism, the Russians do this a bit too, um, it's not a matter of just dumping money on companies. It's not that market phenomenon of subsidization. It's done in different ways. I mean, the state owns the company, so in lots of ways of subsidizing them that are a bit invisible. And the rules in the WTO don't really account for that very well. And so the Americans have a good point in saying we need to renegotiate those rules, and the EU basically agrees because China is you know, unfairly subsidising lots and lots of, of things. And the rules weren't geared for that type, because you know, they all date from the mid-90s when everybody believed that liberal markets would take over and so on. And well, things have developed in a different direction. So that's the second problem. And then the third problem is that Trump is a protectionist. And that's, you know, this is reciprocity, as you were hearing first, uh, meaning um, we just want to protect 
the steel workers, and we also want to protect the car workers, which, by the way, you can't do at the same time because the car workers want cheap steel, so you've got to choose, right? I mean, <laughs> you want to help the car workers, you've got to let in the cheap Chinese steel. You want to help the steel workers, well, then you don't let in the cheap Chinese steel. But, it, you know, if you're a car company and a car worker, you really need as cheap steel as possible. You go bust. So um, that you know, basic distinction between a final product and the inputs escapes the Trump administration. So what has been done with that? Well, in addition to trying to kill off the dispute settlement system, um, Trump has just slapped on these massive tariffs on Chinese products. Um, and from other countries too, by the way. Um, some of them are smaller, they've got to put up with this. This is one of the problems with leaving the WTO is, you know, it's divide and conquer and the US is a big player. And it, it's always resisted multilateral organisations so long as it can't control them and it can't really control the WTO. I mean, this is just the you know, dynamics of being the big, biggest empire. You know, I mean, who wants rules when you're a big, a big player? You don't need them. Rules always protect the weak, right? Or at least the middle players, the very weak. They don't benefit too much either. But the ones in the middle, they do very well, like the UK, for instance. Anyway, so what's Trump done? He slapped these tariffs on steel and on, he's about to, on cars. And as Meredith is saying, well, you know, there are these rules, you can do this. Uh, so you go through investigations and so on. Well, he hasn't bothered with any of that. And he's just said national security. We need steel and aluminium and we need cars because he's about to say cars are national security too. Really. And as Meredith was saying, well, this causes problems for the WTO system. And I'll just very briefly as I finish tell you how it causes problems. Um, Article 21 of the GATT, which is still there and relevant for all this, says that you can take measures like tariffs for um, national security reasons if you believe that these measures are essential to your national security uh, needs, essentially. Does the US think this? That's the question. Does it think that this is actually necessary? That's a very liberal test, all right? Um, and it's got to be in three situations. In time of war, if there are nuclear weapons involved, um, or if it's to do with your army, essentially. And there's some plausible case that, you know, you need steel for the army and so on, but apparently, you know, it's only really, really plausible at the minimum level. So until now, this type of national security argument has come up. Occasionally, it's all countries have been bought off. Nobody really wants you know, to give a national security question like that to an international court, so long as there is one sitting in Geneva. But what Trump has done, as Meredith was saying, is so, un so implausible in general terms, particularly when it comes to the cars, but steel and aluminium, there's barely any real effort put into saying this is for national security, that the other countries have said, okay, whatever, we are just going to bring the case and we will have the court decide if this is national security. And this is bad in both directions. So if the court says, first of all, we're going to pay attention to this argument, and we decide that the US can't do this because it's not in the national security interests of the United States, and you don't think that is, and how do we know that? Because you've been tweeting stuff that says, seriously, we discussed this on Twitter in part, the evidentiary value of tweets, because Trump says, got to save the cars you know, because they vote for me. I mean, you know, he says this, it's not national security, there's lots of contradictory evidence to show that the US does not believe this. If they say that, well, the US is going to pull out of the system, so that's bad news. And if they say the opposite, oh, yes, it is for national security, despite the tweets, we'll pretend to believe you, 
well, that's also bad because then Trump is just going to keep doing this and other countries will join in. So it's a, it's a no-win situation, right? That's the, um, that's the sorry state that we're at at the world level, but, um, uh, you know, um, at least it's not Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> speakers. Um, we've now got some time for questions, so if you need to put your hand up, and there's two roving mics, and I, I will point to you. I'll take a few, actually. There's one in red, um, and there's one down here in purple, a man in purple. So the, the, the red man first, and then the... Sorry to describe you just by your colour, your purple shirt. So if you'd like to tell us your question, if you're addressing it to everybody or who specifically. Um. This is for anyone willing to respond, really. Um, two, two questions. Uh, ages ago, I studied international economics, and I was told that the uh, free trade was considered the first test in terms of possible system for international trade. Um, now that we have seen uh, um, also the, the dangers of integrated economies like 2008, a global crisis on mortgages and the problems of uh, increasing inequalities. What's the consensus within the economic <coughs> sciences? Is it still considered the first best free trade? This is one thing. The second, during Brexit talks, um, there is this um, idea of reverting to WTO rules if. Uh, Britain cannot secure a deal. Could you give a very brief explanation of what that would entail? What does it mean to revert to WTO rules? Thank you. Okay, we'll, ta we'll take an another question down here, uh, and then, uh, then another a third question up here, then, then I'll, I'll revert back to the panel to answer. So a very important question, first of all, about um, wh whether free trade is always good, is, is in, in economics and, and WTO rules, but please. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, yeah my, my question is that trade's changing. So as we look to the next 10 to 20 years, uh, with automation, AI, biotechnology, what we describe as manufactured goods could very much change. It could be, become much more local. So raw materials become much more important. IP will become much more important. So I just want your thoughts on you know, what that means to the world economy. But going back to the Brexit question is, uh, I mean, this has a big, big impact on how, how the UK survives in the future, of course. Um, but going back to Brexit is, What's your recommendations for the government's position if we leave? What do we do? How, how do we trade? If the World Trade Organization falls apart, what do we do? What's your recommendation? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take a third question and I'm going to ask the panel to, to answer which questions they wish. My, my first question is really a continuation of, of the first question, um, which is, can, can countries continue to run trade deficits over very long periods of time? Or do they need to take protectionist measures? Okay, great. So, um, thanks for those three great questions. Who would like to kick off? They were very economically, so I'm looking at Meredith to begin with. I'm happy to take a... Uh, I'll, I'll address two, and I think some are very maybe suited to Lauren and some of the others. Um, so, the first question came up is, you know, if you study economics as an undergraduate, we will tell you that free trade is the first best solution to a, a problem. So what do we mean by first best? We mean if we want to organize production globally, 
the best way to organize the total world in terms of what is produced where is if you didn't have taxes on things moving from one place to another, you could have people exploit their skills. So this is David Ricardo's principle of comparative advantage. So do we still think that that is important? Now, some of the, the challenges that were brought up. So one, uh, the point of the 2008 financial crisis was brought up, and also the problem of increasing inequality. So I'll start with increasing inequality and just say very briefly, um, Per capita income in China, circa 2000, was about 1,000 US dollars per year. You know, by 2014, it was about 6,000 US dollars per year. That's the entire you know, population, 1.3 billion. It's the most dramatic improvement in human condition you know, ever. And it's taking place under a you know, communist government. And if we think about, you know, there's a question of what do we mean by inequality? Inequality is rising within the high-income countries of the world, and that is a serious problem. And one of the concerns, potentially, is that as we've had more and more free trade, we've had an alleviation of dire poverty in the low-income parts of the world, but the system as we've got it set up in the high-income parts of the world is not supporting those with the lowest levels of education. So that is a serious problem. Most economists would tell you the appropriate solution to that problem would be better domestic policy within those high-income countries that would provide for better and more equal education and also more redistributive tax system within the economy. So we should tax rich people in the US, the UK a lot and reallocate some of that money to lower income people through various means. It could be just through education, but it could through, through actual transfers of things like you know, food programs. Um, with regard to the question about bilateral trade deficits, this ties into the question about the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I'm still a believer that we can run a large and persistent bilateral trade deficit. The US has been in deficit roughly since the end of World War II. What does that mean? The U.S. spends each year more on things it imports than it receives from other countries on things that it exports. Another way to say that is everyone in the world outside the U.S. thinks the U.S. is a good place to invest and get returns on their investments. So there's sort of a funny thing here that countries like, for example, the U.S. that has a very good investment environment and you know that if you make money there, you will be able to get it back. The state is not going to seize it. That's a country where you can run this large, persistent bilateral trade deficit. With regard to the 2008 crisis, there's a specific problem that some of that crisis was generated, to some extent, by the bilateral trade deficit with China. The Chinese government was intervening very heavily in buying US Treasury bonds. So it sort of complicated things. So there may be some reasons in the future we might want to think about some limitations on what are called the transfer of capital across countries. But I think this is sort of an active area of research. So I will stop there, and I will shift off questions about WTO and Brexit rules yeah. to some Lauren, of the others. Yeah, sure. OK, so let me, uh, as briefly as I can, explain three different levels of regulation. So the first is the EU, and then the second is FTAs, and then the third is uh, the WTO. So in the EU, the important point is that uh, you've probably heard of the term of single market or internal market. What this means in reality is that as between the EU member states, you don't have customs duties, 
um, and you don't have other regulatory restrictions at the border. Um, in other words, you don't have discrimination between products that are made in one of the EU member states and that end up in uh, your member states. That's fundamental. But the same concept also, in theory, not so much in practice, applies to services. So in theory, a Polish plumber should be able to come here and be a plumber as much as a UK plumber. But that's a bit more in theory um, than in practice. Beyond this, there's a couple of other things that um, are important to note. So one is when it comes to products, that products don't have to be made. To be sold in the UK, the products don't have to meet UK standards. They can meet German standards. Uh, they can meet Turkish standards, because Turkey's part of this as well, or Norwegian standards, Norway's part of this as well. This is what's known as the single market, as opposed to just being a free trade area. Even if UK products would have to meet UK standards, so it's better than what's called national treatment, right? It's reverse discrimination. And how does this happen? Only because of the possibility of regulation from Brussels, which is, of course, all the member states regulating in Brussels, not really from Brussels. Everybody does this jointly, to set a floor, to say, well, you know, we'll accept what you do, but not beneath a certain floor. So the floor protects the environment, labour, and, and so on. And in addition to that harmonised regulatory floor, you've got individual rights. So you as an individual get to enforce these freedoms, economic freedoms that are in law uh, before a variety of national and uh, supranational courts. Now, that is very, very developed, and there's nothing like that anywhere in the world um, between countries. Then we have FTAs. FTAs are a lot simpler than this. With FTAs, you've got free trade agreements, You've got no customs duties and you've got no other quotas or whatever between, uh, on trade between countries. You don't have, in general, very much in terms of the ability to sell services between countries. They don't really do that. They do it a little bit, but not really, not when the services are regulated. Lawyers, doctors, there's very, very little there. Okay? So given that the UK is a service economy, that's kind of bad news. Right? You don't have individual rights. That's not dealt with. Um, at all, and you don't have, most important, anything like mutual recognition. So you always have to meet the standards of the country that you're exporting to. So this is what's lost by leaving the EU, and that is what you would get with a free trade agreement. Then you go to the WTO on top of that, and it's pretty similar, but in addition, you've got customs duties to worry about. And there are a few other things that are missing as well. So you can see that you know, leaving the EU means that you lose this degree of economic freedom of course, you gain as well, right? You don't have to pay into the budget. You don't have to put up with all these pesky foreign workers and all the rest of it, right? And you don't have to go on holidays so easily. <laughs> right? So there are, you know, upsides. Um, but, uh, yeah, just in strictly, uh, you know, in terms of international economic law, it gets thinner and thinner um, the, uh, the further you go, um, you know, uh, international. Good. Mark, do you have any comments? No, that's particular one. No, 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 okay. Minako? Um, yes. Um, I'd just like to just respond to two points about uh, the relation with the inequality and the neoliberalism. I just, well, the, because I'm the uh, internet political economy scholar, I just like to just uh, make notes from that perspective. So the WTO, the GATS WTO system has been built by, of course, well, the, led by the the power, powerful countries, that means Western countries. 
And then the WTO is basically crafted based on the neoliberalism. And that is something, well, that, you know, of course, well, the neoliberalism based on this model that the world, the world economy has been experiencing the economic growth, but mostly shared by the southern economic region, mostly Asia Pacific in the Western countries. And then the many small countries are left over from the economic growth. That is inequality. And then what that relation with neoliberalism. So when we think about the WTO reform in relation, that what I'd like to question, what levels of reform is necessary? Should we already just a, just a very internal reform of the rules or decision making or whatever? Or more, I, my point of view in equality, in terms of inequality, the WTO reform has to be discussed in a more wider context. So the institution, that means institution. Is it the right institution to deal with? Otherwise, with the relation with the ANCTA, kind of the more wider perspective of the global trading governance should be discussed in terms of inequality. And the second question is about the Brexit. So I'm just doing a lot of research about the Brexit and especially the um, the UK's uh, relation with, in terms of um, uh, non-EU countries in the future trade deal with non-EU countries in the future. And then the point is, well, very cheerful, Mr. Fox always said, oh, we can gain from the future trade deals with the non-EU countries. No, it's completely wrong <laughs> and unrealistic. <laughs> and I said, but that's, well, for example, the, the case of the FTAing services I have been working for the service trade agreement for many years, and then I, um, for example, um, the, um, the EU's, we, when we look at the EU's FTAs, um, there is a FT, MFN clauses. And these clauses, that's a, if the, the um, let's say, Japan, if the Japan concludes the, the UK-Japan trade agreement in the future, if they make the better deal to the UK, they have to, um, they have to automatically apply to the EU. So that means all the better deals have to <laughs> apply to the EU. And vice versa, that's, uh, so the EU, also, if they have to make the better deals to the UK in the terms of the future trade relationship with the UK, they have to accord that better deals to the trade partners on the FTF trade partners. So, that even in the legal point of view, this is very, you know, sort of the bindings. And then also the, not only in the service, but other agreements as well. So in that case, well, there are so many limits. And then uh, it's very, the services, the UK services economy, it's and then most of the exports, 60% is goes to the EU. And then hard to um, the recoup the loss caused by the Brexit. Good, thank you. Right, can I ask some more questions? There's, there's two at the back with their first two hands up, and then there's one over here. I'll come to you, there's the third. Hi, we are now in the longest period since we've had the last crash ever. Um, the US stock market last week just wobbled. Um, it's, still not, it's still in question whether it will fall. And they are, even the US, even the Bloomberg is actually saying things like, the only reason it's being held up is because of the tax breaks that they gave. Everybody's expecting a crash. And the Economist has actually said in uh, last Friday, um, we no longer have policy 
global policies that we can all come together and say we've got to do this to save ourselves. That doesn't happen right now. And yet there's so many things that's going to trigger it. Yes, I know the crisis is. is um, I've got a couple of questions. Um, firstly, uh, I think Meredith, you mentioned that um, the US uh, thought that its allies wouldn't really get involved about the um, the idea uh, that it, of national security. Um, I was just wondering, um, how much does military power determine economic power of a country? And has that changed over time? Um, and then secondly, um, concerning the the $200 billion tariffs that um, the US has imposed on China, how can China effectively respond to that when it doesn't import um, $200 billion of US goods in total? Okay. Thank you. And there was a question over here. Yep. Um, if the, um, if uh, does the WTO affect Brexit? Um, no, no. Does the WTO affect stock, and if so, how? Okay. Does it affect? Stock. Stock? Yeah. Stock market? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so th three questions there on, on trade in the stock market, political power, and um, where, where the next crisis is coming from, where the next crash. Uh, we, know that we know there is going to be another crisis, we just don't know when and where. Um, I'll actually um, jump in on the crisis. Uh, yeah, yeah, please, please. You, I, uh, you're the expert on crisis. So. I, I, dodged, I dodged the last round yeah. of questions. Um, one, one of the things that I found so amazing uh, about the, the Brexit debates and, and the, the coverage of it and, and both sides of it when it was going up towards the referendum was the lack of discussion of what I thought was just the most obvious potential crisis that would face this country if Brexit did go forward. And that is the food crisis, I think, which is much, much more prominent than any uh, existential financial crisis. And what amazes me, too, is that this is something that is so ingrained in British history that to have almost a complete lack of discussion about what this means for food prices in this country was all the more remarkable. The reason why Britain turned to free trade, embraced free trade in 1846, was to get cheap corn. To, so that they could feed the hungry, so that people could afford to buy bread and put food on the table. This is the main reason why they were able to succeed in overturning the Corn Laws in 1846. And this is why free trade became the closest thing to a national identity this country ever had from the 1840s to the 1930s. When these protectionists, these conservatives, tried to challenge this from the late 19th century and early 20th century, the tariff reform movement, famously by, by uh, Joe Chamberlain, um, they were defeated because they were able to call upon this memory of the hungry 40s, the starving times, when they couldn't get access to cheap food. The EEC, why did they, what were the main reasons for joining the EEC in the 19, early 1970s? The promise of cheap food from Europe, alongside the fact that this could potentially, by integrating these markets, uh, it could make it a more peaceful place. It would undermine some of the, the reasons for why they thought they went to World War twice, which is uh, economic conflict, econ uh, trade wars between the European states. And so it was amazing to me. Nobody was talking about food prices. How is this not one of the most central things? We now have Theresa May stockpiling food. <laughs> right? She, what did she just point? Was it a, fed, uh, was it a food supply? 
what is, I don't, I don't even know the name of it, but she, didn't she just appoint, uh, appoint somebody to, to oversee essentially food storage in case of crisis? They said that, that milk items are going to become luxury items in Britain after Brexit. I'm a cheese lover. I don't know about you. This is really scary. Um, <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is really, I mean, this I think is a really, I joke, but it is a really serious thing, especially for the poorest amongst in this country when it comes to putting food on the table. And I, I'm amazed that it still is at the center of this debate about the, the oncoming crisis. Yeah. Meredith, there are three issues. There was the, the crash, there was um, uh, the critical no. power, and there was also the stock market. So you can address any of those three. OK, and we also had a question earlier about goods are changing, production is changing. We didn't get to that. So I'll just say very briefly, um, military power and economic power, I mean, they, they do I'm not a historian, so this would be more Marx's area, but they do tend to go hand in hand. I think one of the, you know, so I'm American, so I'll be a little self-serving, but I think one of the great gifts of the United States to the world was that after the World War II, we went for this open multilateral system. And when Churchill and Roosevelt met in the middle of the North Atlantic during the war, the U.S. said, we want an open multilateral system. We're tired of that preferential system you have where you know, dodgy countries like Australia have preferential access to the UK market. We want an open system where everybody gets the same access. And so that was the system that you know, more or less has been going along. There have been bumps in the road. Um, in terms of retaliation, the General Motors Corporation produces and sells more cars in China than they do in the United States. So if you are General Motors right now, you are very, very unhappy about this trade war because one way in which the Chinese could retaliate against American interests is they could basically go and say, oh, actually, we need a lot of safety inspections of GM plants in China because we're not sure if you're up to labor standard. And this could be hugely costly to GM. But they could also say, okay, well, you know what? It's really expensive for us to police intellectual property law right now. So we're not really going to be able to send out you know, policemen to check if Chinese domestic firms are infringing on US intellectual property. So there's many ways in which countries can um, retaliate. With regard to the stock market and the role of the WTO, yes, the tax cut is propping up the US stock market. I don't know if that a crash is, is inevitable. I mean, right now, we're really riding high. Unemployment's low. Inflation's going to creep up. So the US you know, economy is overheating. Um, the WTO wouldn't necessarily affect stock prices immediately. So if you think about what the WTO does, it gives companies access to world markets. So a company that under the WTO can sell stuff lots of places. And so when rules are changed, they're really announced early on. So countries gradually get those benefits. Every once in a while, there will be one of these rulings from a WTO dispute panel. And so the Supreme Court of the WTO will come down with some ruling and say, actually, Airbus's way of subsidizing isn't really right. And so then there's going to be a big thing where they're going to say, you're going to have to change their policy. And that could impact Boeing and Airbus prices in the stock market that day. With regard to changing production, I think this has been discussed a lot, but I don't think we really know where things are going. So we do know, in general, that if um, you know, if labor costs in, say, Shanghai start to creep up, it's less attractive as a place to produce. So maybe you're going to relocate that production back to the United States if you can now just build robots and you don't have to go through the transport costs. So companies are constantly making these trade-offs. Yes, um, American manufacturing output today is far, far higher than it was 20 years ago. 
We produce more, it's just we don't have people who work in that sector anymore because they've been replaced by machines and robots. Um, so this is already happening, but we still want to trade because some things that you can't do with a robot yet, like sew a shirt, you know, someone can get the skill to do that in a couple weeks of training, and that's why a lot of you know, apparel production is now taking place in sub-Saharan Africa. So the Chinese, it's too expensive to hire labor. Chinese business people are opening up you know, apparel manufacturing plants in lots of sub-Saharan Africa, and the growth process is proceeding around the world. Laurent. No, I, I don't um, have anything to add on. Okay. Uh, Minako? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. You're okay? You're okay? Good. Good. We've got uh, time for one more round of questions, so get them in now, please. One, two, three, four, and I'm going to go five, and then we'll have short responses from, from the answers. So, um, so short questions and short answers, and then we can all be out on time. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to know what your view was on solutions. So I think some of the panel were quite optimistic on the WTO reform, but it's been a very long time since the WTO had any reform that actually was substantial. Uh, the other potential solution is kind of going deeper on regional trade agreements, which I know obviously in England talking about Brexit doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe for some of the other countries that's more possible. Do you think that's a more likely solution, or do you think the WTO reform is actually viable? That's a very good question. Is it global or is it regional? Another question here. Um, Going back to trade balances and um, um, uh, Meredith's answer, um, if it is true, as she said, that <clears throat> the US seems a very prosperous and desirable place to invest and do business, and, and these uh, negative trade balances continue and have done for decades, could this be linked to the dollar's role as the reserve currency? And if it were shifted in favor of some other candidate, would that plunge it? Very good question. Also bear in mind the UK's had a persistent balance of payments deficit since the 19, early 1980s, and we don't have a, a, a strong reserve currency like the dollar, but it's a very good question. Yes, number three. Hi, um, I wanted to bring in the Khashoggi case in Turkey concerning the Saudis. Um, I'd, heard, I'd heard that uh, the US weren't considering taking sanctions on the Saudis because of their close links with trade. So my question is, do you think that trade is more important than moral principle, or can they work together? Very, very interesting question. Um, particularly, particularly when you want a short answer. There was a couple over here. You, you've already had one, I think. But you, you want another one? Okay, go on then. Go on then. You again? Yeah, okay. If, if you insist. I'm trying to balance the ages up here. So, um, does, uh, does Brexit affect the WTO? Does, does Brexit affect what's the impact of Brexit on the WTO rather than the other way around, I think? And there was another one. Is there one more? One more down here, and then, then we'll give the, uh, the last five or six minutes to the, to the panel to, to give their brief answers. Or and, and make final comments. Thank I've you. I've always thought that European food prices are quite high because we pay for it through our subsidies, and also the cost of production is pretty high. So I'm very astonished to find that uh, somebody says we are, we are in the e EU because of cheap food prices. Okay, so the food prices issue is, an, is, 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 is both the price and the availability. So, very important. Who would like to go first? Okay, Meredith, you, you've put your hand up. So, uh, and, um, The and U.S. imports very little from Saudi Arabia. So, purely on economic principles, there's no reason why we can't impose trade sanctions. However, we might also, you know, so this is a, a little bit of a difficult question, but I think that um, moral principles should guide economic policy in general. And the minute we are unwilling to, you know, 
draw important lines in the sand, that's, um, that's a bad point. We could certainly put um, trade sanctions on Saudi Arabia. We had trade sanctions on South Africa because they were engaging in immoral policy, and that led to a, a regime change that you know many people would think was a very good outcome. Um, yes, the dollar's role as a reserve currency is part of the reason why we've been. You know, so I think a, a different way to say that is one of the reasons why the U.S. gets far more investment than we would expect it to is because of the stability of that investment value. And some of that is because the stability of the, the value of the dollar. So over time, if we see the dollar's primacy in the world declining, we might expect some of those trade deficit, you know, that large persistent trade deficit to gradually um, become smaller. Um, and does Brexit affect the WTO? I would say Brexit affects WTO members. And actually, a group of countries that are very concerned right now about Brexit are developing countries that have access to selling their agricultural goods in the EU. Because right now, countries all over Africa sell agricultural goods into the EU and the UK you know, basically duty-free. And a big problem they're concerned about right now is as the UK and the EU split, what kind of access will they have for selling their food products into the US? So I think that's that's one important thing that's happening there. I'll leave the rest to others. Lauren, do you want to add? Yeah. And, and make any final comments as well if you if you don't. Yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, I'll uh, answer the question on WTO reform and regionalism. Yeah, I'm a bit pessimistic. Um, I mean, the problem is it's just too big. Um, there's, uh, in practice, a veto on any change. The WTO hasn't done anything since 1995, since it was established. And the reason is that it used to be um, a bit of a gang of four. No, it was called the Quad, which was uh, Japan, Canada, US, and uh, who am I forgetting? Australia? EU. Okay. <laughs> no, Australia is just a no, dodgy, little, just a dodgy yeah. little country that... <laughs> Um, anyway, so um, since then, what's happened is uh, <coughs> players have emerged. No? We've got Brazil, China. China, my favorite statistic is that China you know, exports more now every uh, you know, minute than it exported in the whole of 1978. Uh, <laughs> so th these are dramatic. India, um, Mexico, and these countries, um, they say no. Right, when it affects them, and China can now say no. And so why would China agree to rules that aren't good for China? It doesn't make any sense. No, no other country would. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic about uh, WTO reform, which means that things will happen at the regional level, uh, I suspect. And then if it ever comes back multilaterally, I would say it's just because everybody is involved in you know, regional agreements. Uh, they do similar sorts of things. You might as well collectivize them. So I could see that happening in the... Know, medium to long term, but I no, I don't think. I mean, it's a useful court system so far. I mean, if that dies, then there's really not much point to the WTO anymore. Um, and just another point on um, yeah, on the food prices. I mean, I, I um, am skeptical of this idea that there are going to be food shortages and food prices, uh, just because what that presupposes is that there's less food coming into the country. And there is no reason, 
post-Brexit why there would have to be less food coming into the country, except for one thing, which is pretty technical. I wouldn't underestimate it, but it is that to the extent that the food depends upon trucks that go from the EU to the UK, and those trucks get stuck going into the EU, then it's going to be more difficult for them to bring the stuff back, right? But there's no reason for the UK to impose any barriers on food coming from the EU at all. I mean, it can pretend that the stuff from the EU is the same. And after Brexit, it's exactly the same as before Brexit. There's no particular reason why it would have to do that for any safety <coughs> reasons or anything else. So I don't understand it. And in addition, it can happily let now, because outside of the EU system, it could let in food from other countries um, cheaply. Right, so where there are tar high tariffs on food, the EU does have high tariffs on food. It doesn't have high tariffs on anything else, really, but on food it does. And they can just pretty much drop them. I mean, that's one of the advantages of being outside of um, of the EU. In that you know specific sector, you can have cheap food if you want. So I don't think that's such an issue. Mark, do you want to defend your food prices? Um, <laughs> I, I, I hope you're right, because uh, uh, again, cheese. Um, but no, I, I mean, it's, uh, this, is, this is much more their wheelhouse is about as far as how this is going to affect it. It was much more about the fact that it wasn't part of the debate itself, because that is one possibility. Um, however, it's the conservatives who have historically been in favor of tariffs on food for all sorts of special interests throughout British history. Um, yeah, but that's because they represented the landowners, and that's when there was food in this country, which doesn't happen anymore. Well... Yeah, I mean, this is, this is fine, but, the, I mean, it, nobody's talking about that. Have they been talking about how they're going to have zero tariffs on, on food coming in after Brexit? I mean, this is something they should be talking about. They're not. Yeah. Um, but as to this uh, Turkish reporter, I, I, um, I think it's really interesting to see. It's not, it's not, I mean, from my understanding, it's not trade that they're talking about. It's a particular type of trade that they're, they're worried about, and that's weapon sales. Yeah. One, of, one of the most amazing things about this, too, is, is that, um, you know, all these people are going to not go to meet with this, that, and the other in Saudi Arabia all of a sudden. But nobody's talking. I've not heard much about how the British government is going to stop selling weapons over to, to Saudi Arabia as they continue their bombings of, of Yemeni children. Um, or, or Trump. I mean, Trump is actually hanging his hat on. This is his new big thing. And one of the reasons why he's unwilling to do much with Saudi Arabia right now is that he wants to be the president that sells the most weapons ever. <laughs> this, is, this is his thing. He's, I, I want to be the, 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 the president that boost American weapon sales to the world. Frightening stuff. So, yeah, I'll end on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Monaco. Yes, I have to be very short. Well, then, I'd like to just answer about the, this, whether global amateurialism or the regionalism. The, the, as Lauren said, well, the, I, um, the most, well, the, in, well, the very important issue of the WTO reforms, why, why the WTO is dysfunction? This is because of the crash of the ideology. Ideology is that after the WTO, that's becoming a WTO, the, the members expanded. And then as a, well, the court, the, the use of the court had a very big power, relative power. But now the, the, because of the emerging economies, Brazil, India, China, Mexico, these countries and then other countries are making a form of the coalition and then try to create ideology. And this is really crash of ideology between the industrialized countries and emerging countries and the developing countries. This is really multi-layered of interest. We can't, we don't know where to go. So this is really also that in that terms, I'm very much pessimistic. On the other hand, well, the regional trade agreements, this is really that the world is now the webs of FTAs and where to go. We also do not know where to go, but the only thing we can say is now that 
FTAs evolves, and the more the matter of the more regulatory alignment and regulatory cooperation, and the kind of the more quality, high quality type of the FTAs, they will promote more regulatory cooperation in the area, such as in the, the area of data protection and so on. So the thing is, maybe the wilder developing countries say, no, 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 I don't want to have the rules, international rules, but more highly industry countries more cooperate in terms of regulatory cooperation alignment. But in terms of Brexit, where to go, the EU or the US, that is also the other discussion. Good. Thank you, Monaco. Um, a very interesting debate. Uh, there, there seems to be a common theme emerging that we need to have reform, particularly the reform of the WTO and other institutions. Um, I, I think it's interesting that in, economists tend to think that free trade is, a, is the first best solution, but we live in a second best world. Many of the industrialized countries that are now preaching free trade actually industrialize behind tariff barriers. Um, so that we have to be very careful of that. And there's a very important question about political power. Um, the biggest economy in the world now, in purchasing power parity terms, is China. Uh, and our concern today is that China's growth is slowing. Slowing to what? 6.5% per annum. Um, so it's an interesting rebalancing of the world economy as the world economy not only reforms the institutions, but those institutions must reflect the way the balance from west to east is perhaps shaping geopolitics in the future. Let us thank our four fantastic speakers for their contributions. Thank you.